Okay, before we get started here, I want to read a quote by a man named Daryl Harrison. Daryl Harrison and Virgil Walker both together put out this podcast called Just Thinking. It's a pretty interesting podcast. They take on different controversial subjects in culture, and and they discuss it from a biblical point of view. And my wife was the one who first discovered it. I uh, I love it. I think it's an excellent podcast if you get a chance to check it out. But the quote goes like this. After one week in this, quote, racism, unquote, course, at Pittsburgh Theological Seminary, what I'm learning is that we have a bunch of ecumenical denominationalists in the church who claim to be Christian, but who in reality are functional pluralists who believe scripture to be neither sufficient nor authoritative. I thought that was an excellent quote. So you have these theological students who are going to be graduating and going out and becoming ministers of churches, and they believe that the Bible, the Holy Scripture, is neither sufficient nor authoritative. So if that gives you an idea of the current state of Christianity, at least in this school, you'll understand the concern. But anyway, the next podcast that Daryl and Virgil are preparing is an expose on critical race theory. And so I wanted to discuss some of these different philosophies and how they're affecting the church from a biblical point of view. So we're going to look at the book of Galatians today. One thing that I would like to make a point of saying is that the church is under attack. And I think that you have your head in the sand spiritually if you don't recognize that. There are certain philosophies that are about identity politics intersectionality. Uh, what these mean is that you, as an individual, are the sum total of your fleshly attributes, such as race, sexual orientation, gender, and socioeconomic status. As I mentioned, critical race theory means simply that all of our culture can be described as a struggle between the oppressed and that would be the people of color and their racist white oppressors. This is critical race, race theory. And the third thing was this notion of wokeism. You've probably heard the term getting woke. And the idea behind woke is that wokeism is, uh, seeks to silence anyone who disagrees with the identity politics. And it seeks to rewrite history, destroy norms, and redefine words. So these are philosophies. We're going to pay attention mostly today to what the scripture says about it and about the importance of the gospel and the importance of our freedom in Christ. So again, in Galatians chapter one, verse one, it says, Paul, an apostle sent not from men nor by men, but by Jesus Christ and God, the father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers with me to the churches in Galatia. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So this is the introduction to the book, right? 
it's the preamble, or the really, it's the introduction of the letter. And and Paul, right off the bat, says that he is speaking with an authority not given to him by men, but given him to him by the Lord Jesus Christ and by God. Right? That his apostleship is based on their you know ordination, and this is important. Right? I want if I'm listening to somebody, I want to know what your credentials are. Who are you speaking for? And why do you speak with authority? And that's important. That's an important question. And he starts immediately off talking about grace and peace. Grace and peace are significant to this entire book. Because as we'll find out, the enemies of the gospel are people who are sowing division. And they are putting people back under the law, under the standards of the flesh. Verse 6. I am astonished. I'm astonished. I think that's a powerful word. Paul is saying, I'm amazed at your behavior. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Isn't that something? And it makes sense when you understand that gospel means good news. So he's saying, I am amazed that you are deserting the good news, that grace that was given to you, for another gospel, which really isn't another gospel, right? There's only one gospel. It's the good news. Yeah, I was thinking about it today. If you study the history of Christianity, it's it's a fairly fickle religion. <laughs> I mean, we're talking about the lifetime, the the life period, the time of Paul's life right now, where the church was already off the rails. So, you know, there is this assumption that the church has longevity and the church has stability. I, I don't know. The church who stays on the word has longevity and stability. But you can get off pretty quickly. And the church has done so traditionally throughout history. He says, uh, evidently some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ, pervert the gospel of Christ. And I've used this analogy before. I heard this a long time ago and I thought it was a great analogy. So if you took a pack of cigarettes, right, and you took that pack and you twisted it, you twisted that pack of cigarettes, would it have all the constituents constituent parts still in it? Yeah. Would it work? No. And that's actually what that word pervert means. It means to twist throughly, to twist throughly. So if you look at Christianity, what happens is people will take the doctrine and twist it throughly so that you have all the words. If you were to walk in the church, it sure sounds Christian, but it doesn't work anymore. Okay. So keep that in mind as we go through this. Verse 8. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one preached to you, let him be eternally condemned. As I have already said, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel other than what you've accepted, let him be condemned. That's uh, pretty emphatic. Am I now trying to win the approval of men or of God? Or am I trying to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. How about that? And that's hugely important for us. You know, there's going to be times, there are times now, where you are a minority, a very small minority. If that bothers you, you're not going to stand very long. I I should say that different. It bothers me. But it doesn't bother me to the extent that I allow it to affect my faith. Because it just is. It's an inevitability. 
in the Christian walk. You are going to be a minority. So deal with it. Verse 11, I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel I preached is not something that man made up. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. Okay, so this is where Paul got the gospel. He didn't get it from men, so he doesn't owe anyone an explanation. He got it from Jesus Christ, okay? It's all about pleasing God. Verse 13, for you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many Jews of my own age and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. It sounds like, you know, he's he's competing with somebody who, who gets the highest GPA, right? Verse 15, but when God, when God, who set me apart from birth and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me. How about that? It was God who revealed his son in Paul, right? It was God's ministry, God's timing, God's direction. So that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not consult any man, right? I didn't go over and say, well, I think I'm getting this right. Is this right? No. He didn't consult with anyone, nor did he go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before he was. But I went immediately into Arabia and later returned to Damascus. Why? Because he wanted to be alone with God. Because that's the one he was seeking to please, right? If he had gone up to Jerusalem, he could have bumped elbows with the big apostles and said, hey, I'm an apostle too, right? But that's not what he was interested in, and that's not what we should be interested in. Our faith is a very personal faith in some regards, and we ought to have a very defiant attitude about safeguarding that. Do you, do you understand what I mean? That when God shows you something, that's it. That's it. Somebody else will come along and try to talk you out of it? No, sorry. And that's one of the things I love about Christianity, the independence of it all. That God showed it to me. I don't owe you an explanation. That's right. Oh, man, that that's a, a, the group thing. Yeah, I think that we all too often fall into that in the churches, don't we? Uh It says in verse 18, Then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Peter, and stayed with him for 15 days. So he was in Jerusalem, right, three years later. But he went up to hang out with Peter, and Peter got to mentor him a little bit, right? And I thought that was great. Of course you're going to seek out mentorship with somebody who's more mature. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that I'm not writing, what I am writing is no lie. Later, I went to Syria and Cilicia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea, which are in Christ. They only heard the report. The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they praise God because of me. Isn't that great? Fourteen years later. So now this is 17 years, right? The three and the 14. Fourteen years later, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to what? To a revelation. Yeah, it was a revelation that God sent him there. 
Jesus. So you see, he's not self-seeking at all here. He went up in response to a revelation and set before them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. But I did this privately to those who seemed to be leaders for fear that I was running or had run my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. So this is kind of strange. He goes up there and he's having to deal with the circumcision question. So here's Here's Paul out out in the wilderness, 17 years. God's showing him all these things that the law was a foreshadow of things to come. Uh, but the real thing is Christ, right? What we read about in Scripture. And yet, he comes up to Jerusalem, which is supposed to be the hot spot. You know, I mean, you have a big you, uh, Christian community up there, and James, of course. And what does he get? People talking about circumcision. That's strange. Verse 4, this matter arose because some false brothers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom that we have in Christ to make us slaves. Wow. Make us slaves. This is a different use of the usage of the word slaves than we're used to, right? We're used to, you know, the idea of slavery being somebody working the fields, you know, the, uh, the, the, the black slaves in this country. But this isn't a different use of the word slaves. This is spiritual slaves trying to put somebody under the gun doctrinally. We did not give in to them for a moment. Why? So that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. So when you have somebody who is trying to burden you with a false doctrine, burden you with with a doctrine that will enslave you, what's your response to that? Defiance. Stand against that person. Stand against that person. If Paul and Barnabas and Titus had knuckled under and, and allowed this false doctrine of these false brethren to become dominant in their church, they would have lost the gospel. Is that clear enough to everybody? As for those who seem to be important, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not judge by external appearance. Those men added nothing to my message. Now, in a way, this almost sounds a little rude, but he's just being clear. Look, they have their ministry. I have mine. They do their thing for God. I do mine, right? Different ministries. Verse 8, for the same God that was at work in the ministry of Peter as an apostle to the Jews was also at work in my ministry as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Peter, and John, those reputed to be pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognize the grace given to me. So do you understand why he was went up there? He wanted to coordinate with them. Look, I'm moving the word over here with the Gentiles. You're moving the word over here with the circumcised. We're on the same team. We have the same coach. So let's work together, the right hand of fellowship. Let's not be in conflict. I don't want you being suspicious of what I'm doing. I don't want to be suspicious of what you're doing. We're on the same team, okay? That's what it means here. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the Jews. All they asked was that we continue to remember the poor and the very thing I was eager to do. Now, listen to this. So remember, Peter had been a mentor of Paul's. But now you have something that, a little hiccup here. Watch this, verse 11. When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. So Peter did something wrong here, all right? 
What was it that Peter did? Before certain men came down from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. So Peter was a Jew, but he was hanging out with the Gentiles. It was all good. Everybody's happy. But when they arrived, these these men from James, these uh, men from Jerusalem, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. Wow. Wow. I mean, you can, and it's a poor illustration, but, you know, it'd be like you were in high school and you're hanging out with some friends and then somebody else walked along. Yeah, yeah, somebody from the cool gang walked by and you're like, I don't want to be seen with these rejects. And then you part company. That How would the people who that you broke company with feel? Slighted? Of course, of course. Verse 13, and the other Jews joined him. So it wasn't just Peter, but it was a whole group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When, and Barnabas was a mature Christian at this point. Yeah. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, all you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force the Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not the, quote, Gentile sinners. That was a strategic term that he used. Because according to the old ways that they all came out of, the Gentiles were sinners, but they weren't because they were of the right bloodline, the right lineage, right? In other words, these people were the others. That's a, that's a phrase we, we hear a lot now. They're the others. They were the ones that we don't want to have anything to do with because we're not them. Okay. So it says, we who were Jews by birth and not the Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law, because by observing the law, no one will be justified. This was a hard lesson to learn for the Jews, and apparently for the Christians too, that you can't be justified by the law. It's impossible. Nobody was justified by the law. If while we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners, does that mean that Christ promotes sin? No. Now listen to this statement. If I rebuild what I destroyed, I prove that I am a lawmaker. In the King James, I think it's it's better translated. If I build again those things that I've destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. In other words, I've been liberated and set free and justified in Christ, right? I've put Christ on. I've been set free. Now, if I start re-implementing these old fleshy standards, I put myself under the law or under, you know, fleshy standards. I do it. It's not Christ who's doing it to me. I'm doing it to myself. It says in verse 19, For through the law I died to the law so that I may live to God. For I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. That's shocking sounding, isn't it? Crucified with Christ, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Christ who is our life, it says in Colossians. Christ is our life. Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ 
died for nothing. Now, do you see where we're going with this? If I have to rely on critical race theory to make sense of things, make sense of myself and my relationship with other people, Christ died for nothing. I dare not set aside the grace of God. Look in chapter 3, verse 1. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Now, there are very intelligent people who subscribe to these philosophies. So please don't be foolish and think only stupid people do. That would be foolish, okay? Colossians talks about beware lest any man spoil you and with philosophy and vain deceit. And then it goes on to call them plausible arguments. Plausible arguments. These arguments are plausible, but they are completely devoid of Christ. And that's what we need to remember when we're thinking about these things. It's a bewitching. It's spiritual. It's a spiritual enslavement. It says, before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified, as crucified. Verse 2, I would like to learn just one thing from you, you foolish Galatians. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Remember, faith cometh by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. Are you so foolish? After beginning in the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? That's a great question, and I think it's a question that we should be asking ourselves regularly. Because think about it, the flesh creeps in the back door, doesn't it? I start off full of faith, and pretty soon, you know, I'm relying on God for everything, and pretty soon, eh, I'm I'm start hedging a little bit here and a little bit there, and pretty soon, you know, I'm giving lip service to God, but in my heart, I'm my own sufficiency, right? We should ask ourselves this regularly. And I'll tell you that, you know, and this is, we'll see this later on, but the only way that you ever stay on the, on the track is if you're serving regularly, helping people. Because if you're helping people, you've got to rely on God. But we'll get to that. It says in verse 4, have you suffered so much for nothing? If it really was for nothing, does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you heard? You see, it's not by effort. It's not by merit. It's by faith alone. Look at verse six. Consider Abraham. He trusted God. He believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. Understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham, those who believe. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. All nations, not just the nation of Israel, which is what the Jews believed and a lot of your early Christians believed. It's all people. All the nations. So that's why Paul had a ministry to the Gentiles, why Peter, while Peter had a ministry to the Jews, right? All nations were going to be blessed. That was the promise. So from this, by the way, we can deduce two things. Look at the next two verses. So all those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. We can deduce that. And we can deduce this. And all who rely on observing the law, or we can translate this for our purposes, all those who rely on the standards of the flesh are under a curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Okay? Clearly, no one is justified before God by the law, because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, the man who does these things will live by them. So if you're going to do the law, you got to do all the law. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming the curse for us. 
as it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus. Why? So that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. And I thought that was great. I heard Mark's manifestation about the Spirit. So when we walk in the freedom of of Christ, we walk apart from the law and we walk in the Spirit. They go hand in hand. Verse 15, brothers, let me make an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture does not say unto seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. What I mean is this. The law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on a promise. But God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. So does everybody understand this? God promised to Abraham the law came later, but the law did not nullify the original promise. Okay, and we'll see why the law was added later on. What then was the purpose of the law? It was added because of transgressions, because uh, until the seed to whom the promise referred had come, the law was put into effect through angels by a mediator. That mediator was Moses. A mediator, however, does not represent just one party, but God is one. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But the scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of what? Sin. So that what was promised, being given by faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. So what was the purpose of the law? If the whole world was given over to sin, what was the purpose of the law? To indict the sin, to say guilty. And it's what I've said before in fellowship. You come up to the law, you say, well, Mr. Law, how do I get redeemed? I don't know, but you're guilty. The law wasn't made for salvation. The law was made to indict. Isn't that something? Um, Verse 22, but the scripture declares the whole world was a prisoner of sin. I read that. So that uh, what was promised being given by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to all those who believe. Before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So we had no liberty, right? We were prisoners. So the law was put in in charge to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. You've been emancipated, set free. You are sons of God, all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you have been baptized into Christ, have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, but you are all one in Christ Jesus. Does that, do you understand this? There aren't blacks and whites. There's no intersectionality. (laughs) That's right. It doesn't make sense, does it? No, no, not at all. Let me read that over again. Verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, but you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed because of your faith, right? And heirs 
according to the promise. Joshua, do you know what an heir is? Yes, it's, yes. It's someone who inherits. It's an, a person who inherits. So because we are heirs of Christ, we inherit the blessings of Christ, right? Look at verse 4. It says, uh, verse 1, What I am saying is that as long as an heir is a child, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. So you think, you think about it. So you have a king, right? And he has a prince, but the prince is a child, you know, and children get into trouble. And so this child has got to have supervision. And even though he, he as an heir has all the kingdom, he's treated just like the slave's kid. Kids are kids. They have to have supervision. Do you see that? He is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were children, we were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive the full rights as sons or rights of sons. Isn't that great? All rights and privileges. There is no longer a need for guardians or trustees. Verse 6, because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls Abba Father. So you see that. So you have a church full of people, Jews, Gentiles, blacks, whites, women, men, all these different people, and God is their each one of their fathers, and they all cry, Abba, Father. That's what this thing is all about. You can't get more equal than that. That is true equality. Do you see that? And I think that's one of the great failures back in the 1800s when you had Christian, you know, the, the slave owners, and the Christians, and and there was a division among them, like, I own you as property. That was a great failure, because in God's eyes, they were all equal. Now, I was thinking about it, that would be like a sibling saying to another sibling, you know, our father, he's more my father than your father. That makes no sense, does it? Jake, could you imagine that, saying that to your sister? My dad is more my dad than your dad. That's kind of dumb, isn't it? Verse 7. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known of God or known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable principles? You've been liberated. Why would you want to go back into your bondage? You're building again those things that you destroyed, right? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. And, and you know, by the way, every fleshy standard has its own requirements, right? And you've got to hop to and, you know, salute and do all the things that they require of you. Do you really want to go back under that again? Is that really where you want to go? Uh, yeah, that's exactly what it is. It's bondage. He says, I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. I plead with you, brothers, become like me, for I became like you. You have done me no wrong. As you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. Even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. 
Isn't that something? Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. What what has happened to all your joy? I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your own eyes and given them to me. Have I now become your enemy by telling the truth? This is an interesting thing, by the way, that when things are spiritually right in the body, the leaders and the people have a great relationship. It's tight. But when things start going awry, there is this antagonism, this antipathy that starts building between the people and the leadership, right? And you've got to ask yourself, where is that coming from? Now, of course, there are times where, you know, it's God getting things right in the church, right? I mean, you know, we're not supposed to follow a leader if the leader's wrong. But a lot of times it's an antipathy that, that builds up in the church that is it's spiritual. Because here's the leader saying one thing and these people are doing something else, right? That's it's not good. And this is what was going on in the Galatian church. And, and it was all being headed up by these false brethren who had crept in, okay? Verse 17, those people, these false brethren, are zealous to win you over but for no good, right? They want to win you over. It says what they want is to alienate you from us so that you may be zealous for them. And so uh, so what they're doing basically is they're going in there and they're discipling people after themselves, right? This isn't just another way of thinking. This is people who are discipling others after their own cause, whether it's intersectionality, Black Lives Matter, whatever you're talking about. This is what's going on in the churches now. This is the attack. There are people who are being deliberate about this, okay? And we need to understand what we're dealing with. They are zealous to win you over but not for good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you will be zealous for them. Verse 18, it is fine to be zealous provided the purpose is good, and to be so always and not just when I am with you, <laughs> which is another aspect of things is, you know, people put on a happy face when the leadership is in town, but then they go back to doing their own thing when he's gone. My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. That's a very curious line, isn't it? I thought Christ was already in me, huh? Well, the thing is, I thought Christ was already, yes, to answer your question, that's exactly right. So Christ is in me, in my spirit, right? The spirit of Christ is in me, but he's not between my ears. That I, you know, when we talk about putting on the new man and putting off the old man, it's talking about putting on Christ and putting off Adam, right? This is the idea of the renewed mind. So that's what it means that Christ would be formed in you. Christ, and that's what we want. Now, think about this. Um, we can actually have Christ in us, but it would lie dormant unless Christ is in my mind, unless my mind is renewed. Yeah. And you think about it, when you have a church, a lively church, a spiritual, a spiritually vibrant church, it's Satan's desire to denude that church of Christ to denude Christianity of Christ. Now, does everybody know what denude means? It means to strip, strip away, to denude. And that's Satan's desire. You are born again. You're going to heaven. All hell can't stop you. But you do not have Christ in your head. Why? Because there are false doctrines about that are teaching you that your righteousness lies in your color or in your 
in a gender or in all these other things. And Christ is no longer in your mind. He, Satan basically renders the church powerless by replacing Christ with something else. Isn't that amazing? That's amazing to me that you have the power, but you can't use it because your head's in the wrong place. I think about 2 Timothy 3, 5, you don't have to turn there, but it says, talks about the churches that have the form of godliness but deny the power thereof. Why do they deny the power? And, and we've talked about this before. It's not like they say, well, I deny power. No, they don't say it, but they deny it by the fact that their head and their spirit are in two different places, right? Verse 20, how I wish I could be with you now and change my tone because I am perplexed about you. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware what the law says? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born in the ordinary way, but his son by the free woman was born as a result of the promise. These things may be taken figuratively. For the woman represents two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. Those are under the law, right? This is Hagar. Now, Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. But Jerusalem, but the Jerusalem that is above is free and she is mother is our mother. Her mother is us all, it says in the King James, for it is written, be glad, O barren woman who bears no children. Break forth and cry aloud, you who have no, uh, you who have no labor pains. Because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has an husband. Verse 28. Now you, brother, like Isaac, are children of promise. Isn't that awesome to think that? That because of our faith, because of our faith, not because of our spirit or our physical lineage, by our faith, we are children of Isaac, children, and we are, and it says now, like Isaac, you are children of promise. It says, and that time, the son born in the ordinary way persecuted the son born by the power of the spirit, so the same now. Does everybody remember that, that you had Ishmael, and Ishmael was about 13, Isaac was when he was born, I think. Anyway, Ishmael had disdain for Isaac. And in fact, one of the reasons I believe that God ran them out of camp was because there was an envy there. And that envy would have resulted in murder, right? Cain and Abel, that's right, exactly, another Cain and Abel. Verse 30, but what does the scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance of the free woman's, or with the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free. In other words, you got to get this stuff out of the church. It's got to go. And the purveyors of this stuff have got to go. They should not be welcome in the church. And that means identifying them and running them off. Now, that sounds harsh, doesn't it? But it's what the scripture says. Chapter 5, verse 1. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm, then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised or let yourselves be put under a false doctrine, Christ will be of no value to you at all. That's Christianity without Christ. How about that? Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obliged or obligated to do the whole 
law, to obey the whole law. The standards of the flesh are onerous and arduous. You have got to do them all, right? They're arbitrary and conflicting. If you really want to live by them, it's your torture, but don't call it the new, the good news. Okay, and we just have got to be clear about this. Verse four, you who are trying to be justified by law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. Boy, that's clear, isn't it? I love it. But by faith, we eagerly await through the spirit the righteousness which for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith. Express, uh, expressing itself through love, faith through love. Isn't that great? That's amazing. Then he says to the Galatians, you were running a good race. Who cut in on you and kept you from obeying the truth? Isn't that something? That kind of persecution does not come from the one who calls you. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. You know, we think of persecution as, you know, somebody beating you, right? Do what I say. He calls this persecution, these false doctrines that creep into the church, they're persecution. And it's like, it's like, you know, yeast in a dough, it works its way through very insidiously. You start, and we talked about it last week, you start noticing it showing up in the language. Words that used to have one meaning now have a second meaning to it, right? The words start taking on nuanced meanings. That's why it's so important for us to pay attention to what people say. And like I said last week, having the courage to stop somebody and say, now, what did you mean by that when you said that? What did you mean by that? Now, this is, and I want to make the point here, too. This isn't a witch hunt, all right? This is not what I'm I'm saying. You're not going after people. You're going after ideas. When you start hearing the ideas in your church, you've got to stop and say, what is this that I keep hearing coming up? This isn't right, okay? So that that's my point here. Verse 10, I am confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. The one who is throwing you into confusion will pay the penalty, whoever he may be. Brothers, if I am still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted, right? And that's kind of the interesting thing. The only people getting persecuted are the ones speaking the truth. In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. As for those agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. <laughs> yeah, and you can let your imagination run on that one. <laughs> so Paul's sitting there saying, look, if I were preaching circumcision and preaching, you know, the law, why am I being persecuted? And we'll, we'll see here, a lot of times people, through just being cowards, give in to the other doctrine because they're tired of putting up with the grief. Right. They don't want to put up with the grief. They don't want to be the odd man out. Somebody's saying, look at him. He doesn't believe in critical race theory. What a moron. And and that's what happens. You don't like being the odd man out. And my point is, get used to it because that's what we've been called to. That's your calling. That's your calling. It's time that we come. We reconcile this thing. Nobody likes being the odd man out. I don't. But, you know, being a Christian for 37 years now. I've been the odd man out a lot of times. I've kind of gotten used to it. We need to get used to it. It's part of part of standing for God. Verse 13, you, my brothers, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature, but rather serve one another 
in love. Did I say that earlier? It's in our service in love that when we are serving people in love that the spirit kicks into big gears in our lives, right? That's where it's, that's what it's all about. Sinfulness is based on what? Selfishness. So when we get out of ourselves and we're serving in love, that's where God is able to work powerfully in our lives. And that's why you can take people from an otherwise, you know, and and you see it. I saw it. I talked about it last week about these nuns that I had seen who, they were awesome. They were working with these, you know, inner city kids. And these nuns were amazing how they worked with these kids. I was just watching them. And that's why you can have these people who, you know, kind of put the doctrine of the church aside and they serve and serve and serve and boy, God is working in them big time, right? That's pretty awesome. I'll read that again, though. But do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature, but rather serve one another in love. The entire law is summed up in a single command. Listen to this. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you keep on biting and devouring, devouring each other, however, watch out or you will be destroyed by one another. And see, that's what happens when you have that law creep in there that's, you know, putting you under the gun. What does it turn you into? You start envying, fighting, griping, uh, and pretty soon, you know, that's what he's saying here. If you bite and devour one another, take heed lest you be consumed. I don't want to go to a church like that. I want to go to a church of freedom and of blessings. Verse 16, so I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. And that's in the context of service. Live by the Spirit, and if you're doing the one, you can't do the other. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. They are mutually exclusive. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissension, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. If you want to do all that nonsense, uh, you can sign up for all these false doctrines. But if you want something better then you're going to have to look to the gospel. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. All those blessings that God has in store for you, and you can't receive them because your head is in the wrong place. Your soul is. Verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such... There is no law. In other words, you can't produce gentleness and faithfulness and goodness and self-control and kindness. You can't produce that by thou shall be kind, thou shall be good, right? It's something that is a byproduct of a righteous lifestyle. That's why it's called fruit. If you're doing all the right stuff, if you're living and you're doing, it's really allowing God to do through you or in you. If you believe God, right, and you're walking and you're serving and you're living life, that fruit will be there to minister, right? It just shows up. It says verse 25, we, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. I love that. 
I love that. Staying in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. How about that? Conceit. And I'll guarantee you that in all these doctrines that I talked about earlier, it is ruled by conceit. The virtue signaling. Look at me. Look at how virtuous I am. It's nonsense. Chapter 6. Last chapter. Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore restore him gently. And I love that because on top of this very confronting epistle, now Paul says, look, there's going to be people who are going to, you know, need some help here. So you need to be able to step up and help them. And how do you help them? With gentleness. But watch yourselves or you also may be tempted. How about that? That's also happening. That's right. That's right. And and so don't outrun your own spirituality. If you're helping somebody with one of these very pernicious, pervasive doctrines, you better know your stuff spiritually and 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 get built up regularly. Because like I said, they're pernicious. They get in there. It says carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. I love that. Carrying one another's burdens. We all go through seasons where we blow it and we mess up and we get caught up in something. And our brothers and sisters are supposed to come alongside of us and to bear our burdens, right? Bear our burdens, that their strength becomes my strength. And that's so important. And we've got to be willing to do that. You know, a lot of times, you know, people run from the guy who's got the the problems. You know, they make you a little nervous. Well, we can't. We got to get mature here, and and it shouldn't be. You know, I mean, you're dealing with a lot of a lot of funky sins. You've got to be willing to come up and help people, even if they're going through you know stuff that would normally make you very uneasy. You've got to be willing to put the time in and talk to somebody about stuff. It's just important. Um, verse three: If anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he's deceiving himself. If you think that you're above it all and you don't have to help anybody else with their burdens. Uh, there's going to be a time where you're going to need it yourself. So, you know, don't get too high and mighty. Verse four, each one should test his own actions. Then he can take pride in himself without comparing himself to everybody else or somebody else. For each one should carry his own load. We have to, you know, we've got our own ministries, right? Our own, you know, God has commissioned us to do our own things. Anyone who receives instruction in the word must share all good things with his instructor. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. A man reaps what a man sows. The one who sows to please the sinful nature, from that nature he will receive or reap destruction. The one who sows to please the spirit, from the spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in well-doing or doing good. For at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. I love that, that we stay committed to the task. A lot of times you're working with people, you're not seeing the, the benefit right away. It means rolling up your sleeves and you're sticking to it, even if you're getting nothing but grief back. Okay? Uh Therefore... As we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. See what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand. Now listen to this. This is interesting. Those who want to make a good impression outwardly are trying to compel you to be circumcised, right? Good impression outwardly. Look at how virtuous I am. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. There it is right there. They're cowards. They're cowards. People give in to these other doctrines because it's too much trouble to stand for Christ. 
There's a lot of people like that. And we just can't do that. If that means that we have to separate from friendships, that's what it means. I, you know, I hate to think that. I would rather bear my, my friend's burdens, you know, get in there and help them. But in order to do that, we have to know what the word says. And even then, there are times where people aren't going to change. Verse 13, not even those who are circumcised obey the law, but they want you to be circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me, I to the world. That's one of the great statements in the New Testament. The world has been crucified to me and I to the world. You know, these people in the Pittsburgh Theological Seminary, they could be reminded of this, couldn't they? Mm -hmm. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. Neither black or white or female or male, it doesn't mean anything. What counts is a new creation. Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, even to the Israel of God. Israel of God means beloved of God. 17, finally, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. I know what I'm talking about. That's what Paul says. I've been around. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. So, Heavenly Father, we thank you for that. We thank you, Father, for the truth of that wonderful epistle. We thank you, Father, for just permeating our souls and that, Father, we can be diligent and vigilant in order to speak the truth of the gospel. And come what may, Father, we are courageous in doing so. Thank you, Father, for this. Thank you for blessing our fellowship here. In your Son's name, Jesus Christ, amen. Joy.